Hi there. All right, welcome to Open Up Yoga Teacher Training. My name is Danielle Day, and I am the founder of Open Up. And this is for my yoga teacher trainees, but it's also for anybody who's curious to learn more about the tradition of yoga. I've been training teachers for well over 10 years, and I've trained over 500 people here in the Pacific Northwest. Today, I'm here in my home, eager to share some ideas. So if you're listening or watching, either way, welcome, namaste. And I'm so excited to share these ideas with you. I'm very grateful for your time. And I think this will be valuable. I hope this will be fun. The lecture, the content, the subject today is what makes a good yogi, okay? This is a capital letter Y yogi. Now, yogini is typically the word for female practitioners. So I hope you forgive me that I will use the generic term yogi as we proceed. This is a piece for the humanities portion of our teacher training program. Our 200 hour RYT program has achieved to this date, 55 five-star rated Yoga Alliance certified sessions. As we proceed here, let's start off by setting our intention. The idea about yoga is about being in alignment with your Dharma. Your Dharma is a word that stands for what it is that you're here to do with the gifts that have been provided you. Once upon a time, I am told by my parents, I was a small child, less than four, placed into the car seat on our way to Issaquah, Washington from our home in Bellevue, Washington. And although that doesn't sound like a vast distance, apparently I started a sentence when we backed out of the driveway and I didn't stop talking until we got to grandma's house. And the thing that <laughs> I'm here to say is my dharma is to talk. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak about things for which I'm just so passionate to share and have been able to carve out a living, hopefully making a difference for other people. And so thank you for listening because my dharma is to collect information, gather it, and then send it out to the world to hopefully make it an even better place. So to that, our subject is what makes a good yoga teacher. Now, good yogi, good yoga teacher, what does that mean? Well, in the tradition of yoga, we have what are called the eight limbs of yoga. The first limb of the eight limbs of yoga are called the yamas. The yamas are typically thought as the restraints kind of like the what not to do's. But I'm a really positive person, so I like to think of it instead as the ways that we regulate. Okay, these are regulations. These are the ways that we regulate the very human urges to be mean or to lie or to steal or to be overindulgent or to be attached. Like the opposite of those things are the yamas. And so when we live in alignment with these ethics, these universal guidelines, then we are on the path to achieving freedom from suffering, which is what yoga is for. So let's take a look at our resources here. I'm so pleased to put out into the world a compilation of what my yoga teachers taught me throughout the years. I've been studying yoga seriously since about the 90s, the late 90s, when I was pregnant with my daughter in 1995. So when I started doing yoga, <laughs> if you count watching a prenatal yoga video while eating Ben and Jerry's ice cream on the couch in 1995, definitely started practicing in gyms like around 97, 98 in my transition to being a single mom. And then in 2000, one, I transitioned from social work to fitness and was afforded the opportunity to 
learn how to teach a Tai Chi yoga Pilates format with my friends from my gym. Got to teach that for a few years. And then I jumped into a 200-hour program in 2005. And uh, I'd been teaching all along in these wonderful facilities. I I worked at Pro Club in Bellevue, Washington, and got to really refine my craft there. And I was teaching all over the place, and then I got into hot yoga, and then I became a manager at a yoga studio, and then they tapped me to be the director of teacher training in 2011. So here we are, 2019, and I'm just grateful to have the chance to tell you that This whole time I've been at it, I've been curious about what makes a great yoga teacher, what makes a great yogi. So in codifying the program that is Open Up Yoga Teacher Training and the manual Teaching Yoga, The Side Hustle to Save the World by Danielle Day, How to Live Your Yoga and Earn Your Living Embracing Radical Self-Acceptance and Love. This is my offering. When we look at the three quests of the Open Up Yoga Teacher Training Program. We're out to discover what makes a good yoga posture, what makes a good yoga class, and what makes a good yogi. Okay, so we're starting there. And you can't be a good yoga teacher until you're a good yogi. So what does it mean? In the book, we're working from pages 24 to 26. And in this video, my goal is to kind of just make a companion piece for you for deeper exploration and understanding so that you can enjoy a nice hour of online content, either as a podcast or in training as an assignment that you would be watching. So whoever you are, wherever you are, and why ever you are here, thank you for listening. I love this here. I start off on page 24 because we hear this all the time. As a yoga teacher, you spend your life hearing from other people the reasons why they can't do yoga. I'm not flexible, they say. And in your heart, you die a little bit and think, yeah, and I'm not, (laughs) no, I'm sorry, let me back it up. And in your heart, you die a little bit and think, yeah, and I'm too hungry to eat and too dirty to take a shower. Saying you are not flexible enough to take yoga is literally like saying I'm too dirty to take a shower. I'm too hungry to eat. It's like, friends, we know that people don't want to play a game that they can't win. All right. So... When people self-select out of taking yoga classes because they don't think they're flexible, it helps us understand how we can be a good teacher. And I was a social worker for 10 years before I transitioned into fitness. And the big maxim in social work was always start where your client is. The big memo in social work was always to not foster dependence, but to help people realize that they themselves possess all the tools, all the knowledge, the skills, and the abilities to get their needs met and to enjoy their life. So I take those ethics into my practice teaching teachers how to teach yoga, and it's really informed by those ideas. So what we're talking about here is kind of the opposite of what yoga sort of came from, which was martial arts. The guru-disciple relationship where you were at the feet of your master and you were beholden to their ideas in service of them is the opposite of being a yoga teacher here in 2019. So what we're saying is we want to really get our arms around what makes a good yoga teacher through the lens of the yamas, what what makes a good yogi. So instead of thinking about they can do all the poses or instead of thinking about they look a certain way, instead of thinking about they're so inspiring and amazing, they have all these Instagram followers, let's instead start from the beginning. What is the job? It's about holding space for the transformation and healing of other people. What does that take? Well, We look to the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Patanjali, let's say that, Patanjali. The Yoga Sutras, the written, codified principles of yoga, that which had been an oral tradition for about six millennia prior, written in the year 220 of the Common Era in the region we would consider today to be modern-day Pakistan, has in it the eight limbs of yoga, the first limb being the Yamas. So if you are a yogi, then you are on the path of these eight limbs and you start the journey at the yamas. Let's talk about it. All right. First thing, ahimsa. Ahimsa. Now the word ahimsa means nonviolence, to do no harm. 
when you see this letter A at the beginning of the word, it's telling you it's the opposite of the word. So himsa means harm. I remember driving through Pioneer Square. No, no, no. It was Pike Place Market. Yeah. Back in the day, past like the show box, and there was a band, like I think a death metal band called Himsa. And I was like, ooh, that's not for me. <laughs> Ahimsa, that's for me. Ahimsa is nonviolence. And you may think of it as kindness, to do no harm. So let's take a look at it. If the first tenet of the first limb of yoga is kindness, well then only kindness matters, right? In the tradition of yoga, we like to say it's like a cosmic game of telephone. Do you remember that game? It's where a big circle of people would sit and play a game where the first person would say a sentence to the person next to them. And then that person would say what they heard to the next person. And then that person would tell, and then that person would say what they heard to the next person. And it goes around. And so when you compare what was said initially with what was said last, you get a sense of what yoga, the oral tradition, is all about. It's a cosmic game of telephone, and it changes a little bit based on the last person who spoke. So when we're talking about what is right in yoga and what is wrong in yoga, there's only like this much that's right and this much that's wrong, and the whole rest is opinion. The cosmic game of telephone, it changes a little bit, based on the last person who spoke. And that's where we are in the industry right now, is we're all kind of teaching our own traditions. My tradition was informed by my teachers, as was theirs. And each teacher along their path picks up some, you know, proclivities, picks up some preferences, picks up some wisdom, picks up things that resonate with them, and then they fashion it into an offering for their students. Along the way, you experience this magic of alchemy where maybe something happens to you. Maybe you experience some contrast. Maybe you get injured or something bad happens. And through that and the practice of gratitude, you learn how to fashion something into a tool to help other people. And then it becomes a win. So the idea here is that the only thing that's right, that which we would call yoga, is that it's got to be kind and nonviolent. Okay, because the first tenet of the first limb of the eight limbs of yoga is ahimsa. So that means the only thing that's really ever wrong is if it's mean, if it's, if it's of ego, if you're trying to hurt somebody else, if you're violent to somebody else, that's wrong. All right, so the boxes we're checking here of ahimsa or saying that it's not yoga if you're in breach of ahimsa means that everything after that is kind of like going to be a different idea, tradition, style, opinion. So there's this much that's right in yoga, be nice. This much that's wrong in yoga, don't be mean. The rest is next. And I hope that's inspiring to you because when we really seek to define what yoga is, we, we have to use the yamas as the litmus test. So therefore, we have to say, if it's not kind, it's not yoga. If it's mean, it's not yoga. If it's nonviolent and if it is to be helpful and, and good in the world, then that is yoga. Okay, so let's start there. Ahimsa. How do we practice ahimsa on the mat? Let's start there. So say you're healing. Okay, say maybe you were trying hard at Dandayamana Dhanurasana, standing bow pulling pose, the dancer. And say you had it in your idea that you needed to make your hips square, like in Natarajasana, the Lord of the Dance pose. These are two different postures. One from the Hatha tradition understands that you're leveling your eyes, chins in the mirror, right? And that the glute muscle is an external rotator of the femur. So when activated, it is going to present a little bit of external rotation of your, of your thigh, but there you are trying hard to nail this posture and you may think halfway through that you should level off your hips. So you should square your hips. So halfway through, you're pretty much asking yourself to rotate your hips below the belly button. Rotation of your spine below your belly button disrupts the biomechanics of the lumbar spine and specifically where it intersects into the sacrum. 
So in our anatomy pieces, we've talked a lot about this, the SI joint, that's your sacrum, the fused vertebrae, in between your ilium, those two butterfly-shaped bones of your hip complex, there is, that's a joint, because where two bones come together and there is articulation, that's a joint. So the sacrum sitting in between the ilium bones, that's a joint, and it only has one to three millimeters of articulation available to it. So if you get any kind of sharp shearing force below the belly button, then you could tear the ligaments. You could really hurt your low back. So there you are in dancer pose and you're thinking I need to square my hips midway through the posture while you're in hip flexion, hyperextending your lumbar spine, that's gonna cause an injury. So say you then are super smart and you ice your back and you rest your back and you stay off of the pose for a couple days till the acute phase has passed and, and your body kind of can help like ease the inflammation and recover. But it's like day three since you got hurt and maybe it's too soon to go full blast with the posture. You have a choice to make. Do you make the same mistake again to check the box with your ego of like, I'm going to nail this posture. Or do you listen to your body and ease back? Well, if one is in alignment with ahimsa, nonviolence, that's the advanced expression of the posture. Yeah. You know, it's fun to use our app that we like to use those guys who wrote yoga 108, because just right off the bat, it helps you just dial up a posture real quick to see what is intended in the posture. And when you search through this Yoga 108 app and you select the Bikram sequence, you pull up this awesome picture of Dandayamana Dhanurasana. Dandayamana Dhanurasana. Yeah. And you can see that even in this really just open hip student, she's got a bunch of turnout happening in her hips. Whoops. Oh, I can draw on it. I didn't know that. Uh, all right, so I'm taking a screenshot. I'm going to go to the screenshot and I'm going to blow up the picture and show you here <laughs> that, yeah, look, look, look. ASIS, the bones of your hip markers, you can see one's up and one's down because she's in the posture. Your glute, that's the aerial buns muscle is an external rotator of the femur. And in this picture, you can see her hip is opening up. If you ask this student in this beautiful expression of this posture to roll her hip down and square her hips midway through the pose here, you're asking her to hyperextend her lumbar while she's in hip flexion. And that's going to ask her to twist below the belly button and that's going to hurt the SI joint. So in and of itself, that's just not a good idea. Now you compare that to Lord of the Dance pose, the Natarajasana, where it is two square hips and the people practicing that one take their hands behind their head and they hold their foot. And if you're working toward this posture, as you know, you can end up using a strap so that can help you. And this is what you end up looking like right here. Square hips in Lord of the Dance posture. But even so, work your eyes to this picture and you can even see here. It's not 100% square because look, this ASIS bone is higher than this ASIS bone, which means she's basically using the glute to help open the hip. And since the glutes are an external rotator of the femur, there's a little bit of turnout, external rotation of the femur bone. So going back to Ahimsa, we have choices as teachers to really geek out on these poses and the healthy movement patterns available to us, or we have the chance to perpetuate rumors, aka what our teachers taught us, without any real thought as to, is that a thing? Why? And for whom and at what cost is that a good idea? You know, whenever you are asked a question in yoga or in fitness, you have to remember that the correct response to any question is, well, it depends, what's your goal? Because all bodies are different. Different range of motion, different limb length, 
different ways that their femur presents in the hip socket, in the joint. And we're gonna talk all about that in all of our anatomy content. But today in this moment, with the goal being what makes a good yoga teacher, we're gonna go right away to the yamas, the first limb of yoga. And we're gonna go right away to the first tenet of the yamas, which is ahimsa. And ahimsa means what? Non-violence, it means kindness, okay? It means non-harming. So as a student on your own mat, you have a choice to regulate your efforts and be either in deference to your ego, trying to make something happen because you think it's going to make you more awesome, or in deference to what's true and kind in your body. And if you're healing an injury, the advanced expression of a posture is definitely the nonviolent expression of the posture. Okay. Now, I've been a pretty excited, motivated teacher especially when it comes to a student that I feel is really bendy or, you know, has a beautiful practice. And sometimes I'm guilty as a teacher of encouraging, directing, and guiding that student to express a physical expression of a posture that may be incompatible with what's true in their body today. That means I messed up. We are best at being teachers when we're here to teach the student maybe think less of what you look like in the posture and think more about who do you want to be in this posture is this a theme for you wanting to be better than you are now is this something that's causing you joy or is it something that's causing you to harm your body harm yourself are you practicing an eating disorder so that you look the part? That has nothing to do with yoga. It has everything to do with taking a picture and putting it on the, on the Instagram. I mean, but is that yoga? It's a posture. But did you hurt yourself getting into it? Well, if you hurt yourself, that was himsa. And ahimsa is what we're honoring and serving as job one. In yoga, job one is kindness. It's nonviolence. So as a teacher, we want to make sure we're holding space for people to explore what's true in the body that brought them to class today. Say that phrase to yourself, the body that brought you to class today. We talked in the last video about how your three people, who we think you are, the physical, who you think you are, your mental fluctuations, and who you really are your beautiful breath, your soul, expressed in terms of the beautiful breath flowing in and out. Concentrate on that. Meditate on that. That's who you really are. So when we're in the place of the highest service possible for students, we're not just saying, okay, take your physical form and make this shape and saying their name in class, egging them on. Well, then it's like, whose idea is this pose? Is it my idea as a teacher? Because I think you can do it. I think you can go farther. I th you know, why would I go there? To make myself feel like an awesome teacher. Because if on my watch you can do that posture, that makes me great. But I don't know what's going on in their body today. I don't know if their back is harmed. You know, hopefully you do what we do. And when I say we, I mean when I teach teachers how to teach yoga, we understand that you do the check-in at the front desk to every student every time. How are you feeling head to toe? What do you want to work on today? And you know, 85% of them are going to roll past the front desk going, oh, it's all good. I'm just happy to be here. But about 15% will stop and say, whoa, yeah, I'm hurt here. So you asking, where are you healing? That right there invites ahimsa in terms of their self-talk. You know, I, I am always encouraging us to consider the way that we speak to students is the way that we coach them. So if someone's saying, oh, I have a hurt knee or no, worse, I have a bad knee. You're like, okay, so you have, you have a good knee and a better knee. Show me what, show me what the good knee is because your knee isn't bad. What did your knee ever do to somebody? Or your knee isn't hurt, it's healing. Like, unless it just happened just now, it's not hurt, it's healing. So, you know, it's just a positive spin to put on it because... Ahimsa is not just about being kind to your physical form, it's being kind to yourself, the way you speak to yourself, the way you would speak about yourself. So back to the example of 
if your back is bugging and you're trying to max out dancer pose, ask yourself if the advanced expression of that posture that day just might be to dial it back because you're healing and you want to be in alignment with ahimsa. So, so how would a teacher know if you were healing if you didn't tell them? And most students aren't going to tell you unless you ask. So as a good teacher, you're not just saying, what's your name? Checking them in at the front desk, making sure their membership is current. No, you're looking them in the eye and be like, I am so glad you're here today for your practice. Tell me, what are we working with here? You know, are you healing anywhere? What do you want to work on? Because as a good teacher, in alignment with Ahimsa, you're here to serve them and facilitate their practice. They're not there to take your class. Okay, because that, friends, is what I'm getting at here. When I'm saying what makes a good yogi, aka what makes a good yoga teacher, it means that this yoga teacher has to abide by and adhere to the ethics of yoga. And what's our roadmap for that? The yamas, the first limb of the eight limbs of yoga. What's the first tenet of the eight limbs of the first limb? Ahimsa. What does that mean? Nonviolence. So if I'm going to say someone's name from across the room and tell them to do X, Y, or Z to please myself and my ego and like, you know, I'm taking something out on them. That's not cool. And that's not yoga. Okay. Now look, all teachers are trying hard to do their best and God bless them. But I'm here to tell you, I'm not endorsing the practice of entering a room full of yoga students, crossing your arms across your chest, waggling a finger at them and saying, look, we have some pet peeves of mine that we want to talk about today. I'm really sick of hearing your foot scrape when you're coming from downward facing dog to warrior one. So we're going to work on knee to nose, chin to chest all day long. Okay. Ask yourself, teacher, in this scenario, pet peeve. Why do you get a say in what their practice is about? Why do you get a say in what they can do? And are you looking at limb length? Are you looking at curves? Are you looking at people healing? Are you looking at people of different ages, sizes, shapes, and abilities? Are you looking at who's in the room or are you looking at your own practice and what you can do and calling that best? Something to think about. Now, I give to you, I understand, and I will concede that all beings respond to one quality, and that is strength. So yeah, teachers who teach from this place get billed as kick-ass teachers. They'll, you know, they'll kick your ass, and they're like, awesome, and, and like, oh my God, their name gets tossed around like they're just some person being glorified. When, what are they doing but coming into a room and giving you the memo that you're not good enough, your body isn't, and your practice isn't, and that you should serve your teacher by ironing out these pet peeves, okay? It's a way to go. You can call it teaching. You can call it teaching a class, but don't you dare call it yoga with a capital Y because to call it yoga with a capital Y, it has to be in alignment with what? Ahimsa, kindness. Now, let's be clear. Being nice and being kind are two different things. Okay, being nice to me is to just let me talk and, and, and just go on with this moment without telling me that my mascara is running down my eyes or that I have spinach in my teeth. Because, you know, you want me and you to be cool. That's being nice to someone. But being kind to someone is going, ooh, hey, mm-hmm. Or, ooh, hey, uh-huh, uh-huh. That's being kind. So sometimes when you are teaching and you are helping, yeah, kindness might be to tell someone the truth. Like, ooh, hey, a little less effort. Connect back to your breath. Or, ooh, hey, looking good, friends. Can you relax your shoulder shrugs down and back? Looking good. Let's go a little slower, friends. Notice here the opportunity to connect breath with movement. Let's initiate movement with breath. Those are kind things you're pointing out in a verbal and energetic adjustment. Being nice 
would be like just sort of like not looking at anything going on and just kind of letting them be but not offering anything supportive like okay warrior one notice your back foot press it flat down widen your stance as needed instead of just letting a crescent lunge expression look like warrior one and just be like well I'm not, I don't want to bug him or you don't want to teach four minutes of duration in terms of an abs set when most of the class when you were checking them in said I want to work on abs well then sure enough we're going to work on abs being nice would be like just doing two minutes being kind would be like seeing through the full four minute set five six minutes of abs only in a sculpt class trust me I've tried that not, not good <laughs> so what I'm telling you is ahimsa kindness you want to really help students honor the body that brought them to class today. Not foist your practice upon those bodies. So what makes a good yogi? What makes a good yoga teacher? Being kind. Not being nice necessarily and certainly not being cruel and mean of ego. Okay? I know we get excited. God knows I've got examples in my past at messing up as a teacher that I can remember and um, I learned from them and hopefully I don't repeat them anymore but you know one example comes to mind where a colleague of mine in a community where we were not allowed to open the doors and people were not allowed to leave um, stood in front of a door wouldn't let a student leave and the student was having a full-on medical situation and she made the student lay down and then she made the class do everything over again because they messed up the energy. Well, that person had psychological issues that triggered some serious, deeper psychological problems. And they had a full-blown panic attack. And so that was a mistake. That teacher was not trying to be mean. But the example I'm bringing it up is because sometimes when we don't take good care of ourselves as teachers then these things can get away from us and we can become a little too excited to help and then we can have the opposite effect of being kind. So kindness to yourself, practicing yoga a good couple, three times a week as a student is job one as a teacher. My friend used to have this saying, she would say, I teach classes for myself because it's really fun and enjoyable. It really is. It's addictive. I take class for my students. And I love that ethic because I was like, yeah, that's you doing your work. That's your craft. If you don't take class as a student at the direction of some other teacher, what are you doing? You're not learning on the path at all because taking class under the direction of some other teacher puts you in connection with what it feels like to be a student. And you're able to pick and choose practices and behaviors, strategies, tricks and tips, and just the nuances of class to pick your own choices, to have a chance to be able to fashion your own offering. So not only are you being kind to yourself by being on your mat a couple, three times a week, you're also going to be a more kind student because heaven help you if you experience contrast on the mat where you feel like somebody was being mean to you, yeah, that's no fun, but it also helps you remember how we might be coming off and what you would never want a student to feel like in your care. And just like Maya Angelou quote says, no one is ever going to remember what you do or say. They're only going to remember how you make them feel. Okay. So to be a good yoga teacher, to be a good yogi, ahimsa is number one. You work hard to serve that, not your ego. Here's an example. I will take responsibility for a mistake I made. The year was probably 2011, and I had a student wiping her face in a Hatha class. Now, she was across the room, and I did not use her name. But I said, okay, guys, remember, you know, try not to wipe the sweat off your face. It's just going to come right back, and it'll distract you. And remember, guys, first there's stillness, then there's clarity, and then the light can find you. Well, after class, she came up to me, she's like, you humiliated me. And I was like what are you talking about? I didn't even remember who she was. I mean, like after class, everyone has clothes on. They look different too, but she was just so mad. I was like, what, what happened? She's like, well, I was wiping my face and then you called me out. I'm like, did I say your name? No, but you, you humiliated me. And I was like, okay, okay. And then I, 
I, I, I don't really remember what happened next, so I'm going to make up this next part. If I was in the zone, I would have been like, whoa, thank you for your input, man. All I want to do is do a better job at this. And it sounds like I messed up. What else happened so I can understand? And then just zip my mouth and maybe even be like, hang on, let me get a pen. I'm going to write this down. So I don't, I don't really remember what happened next. So let's pretend I did the right thing. The right thing would have been to be like, help me understand. Because I do remember her saying something effective. I put sunscreen on my face because I walked to class from my home. The sunscreen combined with the sweat burned my eyes. I chose to wipe my face and you called me out. And so long story short, I know I didn't say her name because I'm pretty against that. And in other pieces, we'll talk about why. But I know that I probably came off really like aggro about that memo and she took it personally and I feel really bad about that. So that experience has helped me do a better job that sometimes when you're teaching a class, you got to go like this just to like not bug them because you don't know what's going on on their mat. Okay, so my point is this. We are at our best when we make general recommendations and suggestions and we don't aim them right at somebody. And even if I didn't say her name, apparently she felt called out. So maybe throughout the journey, we remember what we can say as a blanket statement and what we can keep to ourselves. But at the end of the day too, when it's not your circus and not your monkeys, per the Polish proverb, you got to understand sometimes it's about what they have going on with themselves. Okay. You know, people are going to take stuff personally sometimes and you didn't mean to be mean. All you can do is say, well, I am so sorry. That was your experience. Thank you for telling me about it. You know, I hope I see you again and get a chance to, to do a better job. You know, that's a good response. So being nice, being kind, being nonviolent, being honest. This is the first tenet of the first limb of yoga. Now, in some traditions, vegetarianism or veganism is upheld to be the correct interpretation and expression of ahimsa. And you know what? That's great for people who have a type of blood like A, B, or A, or B that does very well with vegetarian. I'm a type O positive. And these little incisors here remind me that I like to eat meat. And for 22 years, trust me, I was a vegetarian from the junior year of high school until when I discovered the Atkins program, I did not eat meat. But around like 2008, it suddenly occurred to me that Ironman triathlons were over. I wasn't going to do that much cardio and I better figure out my nutrition so I feel good. So I stopped eating meat and I, I'm sorry, I started eating meat and then that was all I ate. So I had an eating disorder for four years. But my point is this. What kind of meat do you eat when you want to be in alignment with this ahimsa? Well, you eat soul food. S is for sustainable, sustainably harvested. O is for organic. U is for unprocessed and L is for local. So sustainably harvested. You want to make sure that you get to meet your meat or at least know where it came from. I love Whole Foods with their little color coding system. If you can spring for the blue meat or whatever that code is that's like ultimate ethically source, then you know that you're not contributing overly to climate change and that you're playing a part in making it better and that the, the animal was not cruelly treated in a factory, that the animal had access to exercise and sunshine and walking around outside in the daylight and not cooped up. So that's, that's important. You wouldn't want that on your soul. So eating food that's in alignment with the soul, sustainable. Right, Guinness? Right? Okay, O is for organic. So yeah, we don't want to put a lot of chemicals in our body and we definitely don't want antibiotics and hormones in our meat products. So something should that you're choosing for meat product should be sustainably harvested and also organically produced, you know, of nature, not a bunch of chemicals. Okay, you, unprocessed. You know, when you, when you buy deli meat, when you buy fast food, or when you buy food at restaurants, like when you buy meat that's prepared, you have no, you have no idea what went into that. And that's not that it's bad, but if you're going to formulate 80% of your nutrition around this idea, it should be unprocessed. 
and that you're going to cook it yourself. And L is for local. As often as possible, try to get food that didn't come in uh, from Brazil and the mowed down rainforests or um, on a truck that came from far away, like that something that came from your backyard. So shout out to Puget Sound Consumers Co-op, PCC. I've been a member since the 90s and, I, and I'm a card carrying, very proud member because nothing in that store is unsustainable, conventionally produced. And if it's processed, it's processed beautifully by the artists and chefs or, you know, in a factory that is certified, um, fairly traded for their workers, etc. And local as often as possible, they provide that. So my point is this, Ahimsa, yeah, you can be vegetarian, you can be vegan if that's compatible with your blood type, if that's for you. But if it's not, then take a look at your meat coming from these kind purveyors, these, these, these artisans you know so that the animal that you're eating didn't even just have one bad day in their life they had one bad moment and maybe it wasn't even a bad moment maybe the way that the meat was harvested was a mere transition to their next life you know I like to think that if you say grace before you eat the meal you're, you're thanking the animal for giving their life for your food and you just can't do that swallowing a fillet of fish going down the mile down the road at 60 miles an hour you've got to Really think about, thank you for giving me this meal. Bless the hands that prepared it. Bless, bless the source from where it came. And by my ingesting this food, can I then amplify my ability to do my dharma? And by my thoughts, my words, my deeds, and my actions, help make the world an even better place. So then we're in alignment. So that's ahimsa. Ahimsa to the earth is what we're talking about too. A yogi doesn't use single-use water bottles as their first source of hydration. Now I get having it in the car because sometimes you'll see a homeless person, you will want to hand them a bottle of water or maybe in the event of the big one that we've been predicting here in the Pacific Northwest, some kind of earthquake, you would want bottles of water in your car and home. Or if you're just on the run, you know, hopefully you went to Starbucks and got an Ethos bottle of water because, you know, that product helps people um, and their access to water. But like for the most part, rolling through the world, you're using refillable containers. And I know this is plastic, but, you know, heck, it comes from Starbucks and they're a very awesome company with fairly traded products and very decently treated workforce. They hire veterans, they pay for college and healthcare, So... Yeah, it's plastic, but, but you know, it kind of fits with my vibe and makes me happy. And then I'll drink more. Straws are great because then you take in more water. And staying hydrated is part of practicing ahimsa to your body. So we want to practice ahimsa to the earth. We want to practice ahimsa to our animals. And so, you know, we're good to them. Guinness is here wondering what I'm doing and talking. And I will certainly love on him like crazy when I'm done. And I fed him about 20 minutes ago. Ahimsa, you're kind. Do you drive angry as a yogi? Well, sometimes you might forget to remember that we're all just trying not to suffer. And so what do you do in that moment? You stop and you think to yourself, okay, I'm so grateful that I remembered that I'm a yogi and I want to practice kindness. And when somebody is suffering and they present to you as suffering in terms of being angry and they're mean and they cut you off in traffic or they flip you off or they honk at you because you had the nerve for going the speed limit in the front of their car, whatever that issue is, you hear that honk and you remember to wave at them like, okay, I hear you and here I'm, 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 I'm helping you out. God bless you. Maybe you're on your way to help somebody with something bad happening, you know, or maybe you say thank you because you're like, Thanks for helping me remember how I don't want to make other drivers feel. So kindness to them, even though they can't hear your thoughts and your words, puts a vibration out there that means something. Einstein proved that everything is energy and energy is on the basis of frequencies. And we can vibe at low frequencies of being mean, right? And, and just responding in kind by honking at them. Or we can respond in a higher vibration in terms of gratitude, like, okay, buddy, thank you for helping me. Remember that my life isn't as hard as yours. That's what a honk of the horn really means. So ahimsa would obviously be um, staying in their way or slowing down your car, flipping them off. 
you know, or heaven forbid worse. Like you wouldn't run somebody off the road, but I just wanted to throw that out there as the nth degree of ahimsa breach. Where if you actively tried to harm somebody else with your thoughts, words, deeds, or actions, and you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that, but be, let, let's be clear. You wouldn't do that on purpose. To practice yoga is to practice, is to give yourself grace when you mess up and try again another day, okay? So let's be clear, being a yogi doesn't mean you're being perfect. Being a great yoga teacher doesn't mean that you get it right every time. It means that you honestly care about cleaning up your mistakes and trying harder. I had a fight with a teacher in training last session and the fight went like this. She had guests come take her verbal final, and some of those guests were people from my past with whom I have varying degrees of my own narrative of contrast and celebration based on stuff that went down, enough said. And she did fine. She kind of messed up. She kind of really messed up by saying, I'm sorry. Like, you don't do that when you're teaching. You own what you say. You say what you mean and you call it good, but she forgot that she was under pressure. And anyhow, it's not like that I was disappointed in her class, but I needed to calm myself down because I didn't know who these guests were when she said she had people coming. So I was a little surprised by people in this room and I was a little surprised about her lack of preparedness and I, I just needed to meditate. So after her class ended, I was on my mat and I was meditating. Now, did she and her squad leave the room, the sacred space, and go debrief in the lobby? No. No, they proceeded to talk in the space. While myself and a few others were trying to meditate after class, they were having their little princess party confab, debriefing and giving her support and advice about this and that. And I let it go. I was like, okay, these people forgot that some of us are still in sacred space and we're meditating. So let's just let it go. So once they all left the room, I pulled her over and I was like, hey, hey, can you help me out? We'll want to start the next verbal final class in about five minutes. Can you let people know? So she goes out into the lobby and in front of the company that was at the house, so to speak, here she said, Danielle says it's time to start the next class. Danielle says it's time that we get everybody like to the next class. Danielle says we're starting in five minutes. And I pulled her over and I'm like, I don't want to hear my name in that shameful way. And she, um, and I kind of got into it. I'm like, please just tell people class will begin in five minutes. Not Danielle says, I'm like, I don't want to hear my name like that. I'm, I'm embarrassed. And so after that next class happened and we debriefed, she's just like came after me and I wasn't clear. I thought I tried to get clear throughout the class. My goal was to say to her, when I heard my name used in that manner, I was embarrassed. That's what I had planned to say. But she came at me and I wasn't clear enough to get to that place. And when she was like, you need to let it go and you need to get this and you need this. I slipped and I was like, well, you need to quit being a wimp because instead of clearly stating that next class is in five minutes, you threw me under the bus. So I sounded like a bad guy in front of the company that was here. And, 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 and that. so we got into it, but it was fun because when you lose, don't lose the lesson. And the fun for me, the gratitude, the higher value, higher vibration opportunity was to, to let her feel heard. And then to stop the bus and be like, okay, what else? And let her tell me more about how I made her feel and, and be like, okay, what else? And let her tell me more about how I made her feel. And then I was like, when she was ready to hear me, I was like, okay, honestly, legit, all I really wanted to say to you was, when I heard my name used like that, I felt embarrassed. I have, I have a history as the oldest child of four children in an adult alcoholic home that whenever my name was said out loud to other people in a shameful way, it was humiliating to me and I was embarrassed because it just triggered me. You know, yoga peels away the layer. And she shared that me calling her a wimp <laughs> really affirmed her suspicions that she doesn't count and she doesn't matter. And so we were like, okay, so let's learn from this. Don't come at someone when you're not clear and don't receive someone when you're not clear. Table it and say, let's talk after lunch or let's meet later today. This isn't a good time. When you're in the thick of it, ahimsa is harder. So as we are not perfect people, 
as we are yogis on the path, as we are just trying hard to honor the fact that all beings are just trying not to suffer, some good practices, some good strategies include knowing when it's not a good time. And so we ended up finishing pretty full circle and that next day she was assigned to teach the part that she messed up. And when she got that surprise, she had the choice to be like, oh, that jerk, she's making me do the thing I messed up. And then she challenged herself to trust that maybe I'm here to help. And she showed up and she shone. Oh my gosh, she shined like the brightest star. She couldn't wait to show me that she worked and she couldn't wait to show me she improved. And I couldn't wait to tell her. I was so proud of her. So the story here in the memo is we mess up. But when you lose, don't lose the lesson. I was eager to share with her when we had calmed down what a good thing we learned. When, there, when we're experiencing contrast, wait till we're clear before we come back and personalize it. When you did this, I felt this, please this. What say you? I'm listening. Hang on, let me get a pen. That's the way to have an argument. Ahimsa. You're never going to be perfect and you, you're going to mess up. But if you care about looping back and affirming the worth and the dignity of people and encouraging them to find their own solutions and strategies and not foster dependence. And when you help people honor the truth of their moment in the body that brought them to class today to hold space for their benefit and transformation and not foisting your ideas and your agenda on them, well, then you're kind of in the zone. Okay. So ahimsa, what are some other ways you practice ahimsa? We teach our children, use your words, right? So they don't hit each other. You know, how do we practice ahimsa when we're experiencing contrast? Well, hopefully we personalize the experience by saying, when this happened, I felt like this. Starting a sentence with you always this or you never that won't go well. And it's you not taking accountability. So not to be preachy, but just to be instructive that to be a good yoga teacher, we want to make sure we're checking the box here on being kind. A kick-ass, motivated, enthusiastic teacher trying hard to tell their students, let me be the guide. Let me be the guide. Listen to your body somewhere else. Let me be the guide. Is the opposite of ahimsa. Okay? Some styles of yoga tell you 90% right is 100% wrong. This class never changes, so your body will. And one day, yabba dabba do, aka you might just do this posture properly. That's a way to go. What's that about? Power and control over other people is the opposite of himself, although it is a very natural human instinct. The one quality all beings respond to is strength. And you are in a power differential as a yoga teacher. You're up here. And they're down here because you hold the microphone. They're, they're, they have to listen to everything you have to say. And the arrangement, this game we're playing about welcome to class, they're looking for guidance. But if you are really in alignment with what is true, what is kind, then you'll be here saying, thank you for letting me walk on the path with you. Right? Let's begin great place to stay going further blah 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 and then using your verbs and not their names to encourage their efforts press push shift lift change i didn't say names i'm holding space helping them plan their strategy and that's very kind so we'll work on that all throughout training now the yamas they are the regulations we are regulating the very human urge to be mean with ahimsa, nonviolence and kindness. Look at all the situations in the world where there is breach of ahimsa. There's a lot going on in the world right now where people are having power and control over others. This is a way that societies sometimes function. It's the way that systems sometimes stratify individuals and by those systems, folks get their needs met. But I submit to you humbly, 
You can call it the way the world is. You can call it exercise. You can call it a class, but you don't call it yoga unless it's affirming ahimsa, kindness. All right. Now, in these last six minutes of this hour together, we should visit the other yamas. The one after ahimsa is satya. Satya, truth. Truth. If it's not in alignment with what is true, it's not yoga. So if a student then is making a choice on their mat and they're in alignment with what's true in the body that brought them to class today and what's true per their breathing and they make a decision in accordance with what is kind and true, then it's a good posture. The Yoga Sutras has a little quip, stiram sukham asanam, stable, steady, sweet, stiram, stable, right? Sukham, like nonviolent, really, sweet to your body, asanam, posture. Poses have to be sustainable and they have to be therapeutic, not violent and not harming you. So you have to ask yourself, is the truth of this moment going to support this posture? Example, Dandemana Janushirasana, standing forehead to knee pose. So the idea is two straight legs, bend your elbows below your calf, place your forehead to your knee and hold it there. The idea about that posture is you should put your forehead to your knee only when you have two straight strong standing legs. If you have both of them bent and you're not even breathing, not only is that not kind to your body, it's not true. Similarly, we want to be honest with our students. If someone asks you something that is beyond your current abilities or your current scope of practice, then you kindly say, you know what? I'm learning that too. Let's look it up and we'll both know versus bullshitting your way through an answer. Satya, truth. You tell the truth. You know, there was a policy in a company I used to work for where you could get your first 10 classes for just $10. And, and back in the day before we had good software, people would take advantage of us because how did we know if they were new students or not? And we'd be like, have you done 10 classes for $10 yet? And some of them would say no. And you would collect their 10 spot and put 10 classes in their in their system, which, you know, for a person playing, paying for a 10 class card is like $110. We just saved them a hundred bucks, checked them into class. And then you start teaching class and you're like, wow, they're kind of like up to speed with things. And like, oh, that's a logoed mat and water bottle from this company. Uh, they're not new. So that was always a lesson to us to think, okay, now we'll collect driver's licenses and track their information. But the sad thing and the thing to remember, which is my gratitude right now, is to affirm this notion that if you lied about your intro special and proceeded to take 10 classes for just those $10 that you didn't have coming to you, you didn't do any yoga. You worked out. You exercised. You may have done 60-minute, 75-minute, 90-minute classes 10 times in a row, maybe 10 days in a row for $10. If that student special, that new student special was not legally yours because you already did a new student special before, even if you only like, you know, took two classes and you paid 10 bucks, you still aren't eligible. So if you're not eligible for the new student special, but you lie and say that you are, and you proceed to take 10 classes for $10, you didn't do any yoga. You, you exercised, right? Because if it's not satya, truth, if it's in breach of satya truth, then it's a lie. And that means it's not yoga. So it's got to be kind. It's got to be true. The third tenet, asteya, non-stealing. Same thing. Say a student shows up and maybe they forgot to pack their stuff. And there's a perfectly nice yoga towel and yoga mat in the lost and found. And they scoop that up and take classes on that yoga mat and yoga towel that wasn't theirs because they stole it. They didn't do any yoga. They practiced some exercise. They worked out. You can call it exercise, but don't you dare call what they did on that stolen stuff yoga. If you're stealing, it's not yoga. So people pay $2,888 or so for this yoga teacher training program. And when they graduate, they know how to time a perfect class, use great music, use three kinds of adjustments, verbal, physical, energetic, 
execute safe transitions and teach an all levels class in real time, all the time, because I work this whole program to earn my keep. I follow the curriculum. I follow the syllabus. If I just took your money and ran you through 200 hours of learning what I know how to do, yeah, that'd be a good time for me, but I'd turn you loose not having fulfilled the promise of teaching you to teach yoga. It's fraud. If I took your money and ran out the clock showing you what I can do and what I know for 200 hours and not giving you a chance to discover your knowledge, skills, and abilities or fulfill my syllabus and curriculum, I'm stealing. That's not yoga. And it sure isn't yoga teacher training. So like every class, we start on time and we end on time because people paid good money to be there, not to be late for their next thing. And, and, and they pay there for us to have a safe, effective class with great music and know what we're doing. And so it's not in alignment with Asteya if we're just taking your money and not earning our keep. So we don't want to be people who steal. And I know you're not somebody who's going to take stuff that doesn't belong to you. But ask yourself, are you always late? Like that's stealing from other people. I remember I had a teacher in training and she was like, well, I'm always late. That's just who I am. And I was like, do you see the inconvenience for everyone else? You're stealing from their experience. You will be on time or you will not be welcome. That's what I should have said. I didn't. I shined it on. I was not in alignment with Satya or Ahimsa. I just don't know why. I just shrunk back from this person. I was like, okay, I'll accommodate you. So I was out of alignment. That journey did not go well. And I learned from it and repurposed this to serve as my gratitude that uh, I'm here to teach us. You have to let your yes mean yes. You have to let your no mean no, because it has to be kind and honest so that we're not stealing. I, I probably wasted her time because she sure as heck didn't turn out to be a good teacher. And she stole time that I had sold to other people for their benefit. She, tr she trounced upon their opportunity to be able to benefit. So that was not in alignment with the state. I regret this. Okay, the fourth is brahmacharya. Let's say it, brahmacharya. Now, brahmacharya sounds like Brahmin because it means of like a priestly expression of living. And you don't want to live like a priest. You are not a monk, okay? So you're not celibate, but you are classy and not trashy. Does that make sense? To be in alignment with brahmacharya is some moderation to our indulgences. So you're in a committed monogamous relationship. You don't sleep around. You have one glass of wine, if that's in your practice, for its proven health benefits. Your second and third glasses are for your witty comebacks and flawless dance moves. But let's be clear, your fourth glass and beyond is unraveling. So that is in breach of brahmacharya because we're talking about where to draw the line. We're talking about moderation. Same with yoga. If you practice three classes a day every day of the week, that's not in alignment with brahmacharya. You're overdoing it. It's going to detract from your ability to be healthy and happy in your life. So you have to know about how to balance things like gambling. If you buy a lottery ticket once a week at the supermarket, that's one thing. But if you routinely blow your family's finances gambling at a casino three nights a week, then that's a problem. So you see brahmacharya. Video games on your phone every so often to pass the time, that's one thing. Spending hours and hours of your family time in World of Warcraft because you're on a raid and these people in your party are depending on you while your family is waiting to actually spend time with you, that is not in alignment with Brahmacharya. Me as an Ironman triathlete, biking and swimming and running and teaching classes and training my clients, it took me away from my child. That was not in alignment with Brahmacharya. I kind of missed her growing up. Aparigraha, non-grasping. The last one is about attachment. Non-attachment is a lofty goal. It doesn't mean you don't care. It means that you understand the precious opportunity of what you have. Everything in life has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you hold on and you grasp and you squeeze and you, and you are you're miserly with your money or you like hoard all these things in your house and there's no room to live because you got so much stuff, or just hanging on to the past and holding grudges without, you know, expressing gratitude for the lessons. That's in breach of aparigraha. Let's say aparigraha. Aparigraha. 
Parigasana gate pose implies there's a lock on a gate. And if you're always locked down, then you're not open. And in this program, we call it open up because when you get over yourself and live in alignment with the yamas, you're working toward the greater good, helping the world be an even better place. So, you know, we hang on to things and are attached because, you know, we love the comforts of our life and we love the people in our life and we love our stuff. But grasping sometimes can lead to suffering. So we honor the people we love in our life because we say to them every day, thank you for being here for another day. I'm so grateful you're here instead of, you know, complaining. And, and the things that we love, we, we, we take it for like the minute it's here now, we are very grateful, but we know that we might break this phone. We might lose this article of clothing. We might donate all the stuff we don't need. Marie Kondo, this whole place to share. And then you're not losing. You're getting more because you're increasing life satisfaction for others. So aparigraha, non-grasping, you happily pay your taxes because you earned good money and you want to be in alignment with the greater good. So there's so many fun ways to think about how the yamas lead us down the path of the eight limbs of yoga. But since our time in this video is up, I want to thank you for your attention to listening to what makes a good yoga teacher, what makes a good yogi. And it is what is in alignment with the yamas. Nonviolence, truth, not stealing, moderating our indulgences, and non-grasping and practicing non-attachment. Again, we're not trying to be perfect, but when you practice, practice makes permanent. All right, thanks for listening. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy your next steps on the path of this journey. Thank you.